Section 17 of the Algonquin Legends of New England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Becky Cook. The Algonquin Legends of New England, or Myths and Folklore of the Micmac, Passamaquoddy, and Penobscot Tribes, by Charles Godfrey Leland. Section 17. How Glooskap is making arrows and preparing for a great battle, the twilight of the Indian gods. Passamaquoddy. Is Glooskap living yet? Yes, far away. No one knows where. Some say he sailed in his stone canoe beyond the sea to the east, but he will return in it one day. Others that he went to the west. One story tells that while he was alive those who went to him and found him could have their wishes given to them. But there is a story that if one travels long and is not afraid, he may still find the great Sagamore, Sogmo. Yes, he lives in a very great, a very long wigwam. He is always making arrows. One side of the lodge is full of arrows now. They so thick as that. When it is all quite full, he will come forth and make war. He never allows any one to enter the wigwam while he is making these arrows. And on whom will he make war? He will make war on all, kill all. There will be no more world. World all gone. Dunno how quick. Maybe long time. I'll be dead then, maybe. Guess it will be long time. Are any to be saved by anyone? Dunno. Me hear how some say world all burn up some day. Water all boil all fire. Some good ones be taken up in good heavens, but me don't know. Me just hear that. Only hear so. It was owing to a mere chance question that this account of the last days was obtained from an Indian. It was related to Mrs. W. Wallace Brown of Calais, Maine, by Mrs. Lee Cool, an old Pasquamati Indian. It casts a great light on the myth of Glooskap, since it appears that a day is to come when, like Arthur, Barbarossa, and other heroes in retreat, he is to come forth at a new twilight to the gods, exterminate the Iglesimani, and establish an eternal happy hunting-ground. This preparing for a great final battle is more suggestive of Norse or Scandinavian influence than of aught else. It is certainly not of late date, or Christian, but is very much like the Edda in Ragnarok. Hind does not observe, in the twilight of the gods, that Jupiter or Mars intend to return and conquer the world. But the Norsemen expected such a fight, when arrows would fly like hail, and Glooskap is supposed to be deliberately preparing for it. A very curious point remains to be noted in this narration. When the Indians speak of Christian, or white, or civilized teachings, they say, I heard, or I have been told. This they never do as regards to their own ancient traditions. When Mrs. Lecoul said that she had heard that some were to be taken up into good heavens, she declared, in her own way, that this was what Christian said, but that she was not so sure of it. The northeastern Algonquin always distinguished very accurately between their ancient lore and that derived from the whites. I have often heard French fairy tales and Aesop's fables Indianized to perfection, but the narrator always knew that they were not incarnio of the old time. Glooskap is now living in a Norse-like Asaheim, but there is to come a day when the arrows will be ready, and he will go forth and slay all the wicked. Malsum the wolf, his twin brother, the typical colossal type of all evil, will come to life, with all the giant cannibals, witches, and wild devils slain of old but the champion will gird on his magic belt, and the arrows will fly in a rain as at Ragnarok. The hero will come sailing in his wonderful canoe, which expands to hold an army. 
thus it will be on that day of wrath that dreadful day when heaven and earth shall pass away with all things in blood and death and fire then there will come the eternal happy hunting grounds if this was derived from christian priests it must be admitted that it has changed wonderfully on the way it is to me very heathen grimly archaic with a strong stamp of an original its resemblance to the norse is striking either the norsemen told it to the eskimo and the indians or the latter to the norsemen none know after all what was going on for ages in the early time up about jotunheim in the north atlantic vessels came to newfoundland to fish for cod since unknown antiquity and returning reported that they had been to tartary it may be assumed at once that this indian last battle of the giants or of the good hero giants against the evil led by the malsum fenris wolf was not derived from the canadian french the influence of the latter is to be found even among the chippewas for they never dealt in myths like this it is very remarkable indeed that the one great principle of the norse mythology is identical with that of the indian so long as man shall make war and heroism his standard just so long his hero god exists but there will come a day when mankind can war no more when higher civilization must prevail then there will be a great final war and death of the heroes and death of the foes and after all a new world then shall another come yet mightier although i dare not his name declare few may see further forth than when odin meets the wolf Hindlehood. 42. The Norsemen may have drawn this from a Christian source, but the Indian, to judge by form, spirit, and expression, would seem to have taken it from the Norse. How Glooskap Found the Summer In the long-ago time when people lived always in the early red morning before sunrise, before the squid to neck was peopled as today, Glooskap went very far north where all was ice. He came to a wigwam. Therein he found a giant, a great giant, for he was winter. Glooskap entered, he sat down. Then winter gave him a pipe. He smoked, and the giant told tales of the old times. The charm was on him. It was the frost. The giant talked on and froze, and Glooskap fell asleep. He slept for six months like a toad. Then the charm fled, and he woke. He went his way home. He went to the south, and at every step it grew warmer, and the flowers began to come up and talk to him. He came to where there were many little ones dancing in the forest. Their queen was Summer. I am singing the truth. It was Summer, the most beautiful one ever born. He caught her up. He kept her by a crafty trick. The master cut a moose-hide into a long cord. As he ran away with Summer, he let the end trail behind him. They, the fairies of the light, pulled at the cord, but as Glooskap ran, the cord ran out, and though they pulled, he left them far away. So he came to the lodge of winter but now he had summer in his bosom and winter welcomed him in for he hoped to freeze him again to sleep i am singing the song of summer but this time the master did the talking this time his metuelan was the strongest and ere long the sweat ran down winter's face and then he melted more and quite away as did the wigwam then everything awoke the grass grew the fairies came out and the snow ran down the rivers carrying away the dead leaves then Glooskap left summer with them and went home. This poem, for it is such, was related to Mrs. W. Wallace Brown by an Indian named Neptune. It appears to be the completer form of the beautiful allegory of winter and spring given in the Hiawatha legends of Peboan and Siguan, Odijibwa. The struggle between spring and winter, summer and winter, or heat and cold, 
represented as incarnate human or mythic beings, forms the subject to several Indian legends as it does a part of the Himskivida in the Edda. The German, J. B. Friedrich, Symbologue der Natur, Würzburg, 1859, remarks that in the Bible Job 38.28 and in the Song of the Three of the Fiery Furnace, ice and snow are spoken of as intelligences. Heat and cold, in classic times, were supposed to be united, yet in conflict, in the lightning and hail, Virgil, Aeneid, 8.429, the symbol for this being a twisted horn. In the legend of the Kulu, the frost giantess, can only be killed by a crooked horn thrust into her ear. The horn darts out at once into incredible irregular length, and evidently means lightning. In the Edda, the he-goat is, on account of his horns, the symbol of lightning and storm. Schwenk, Sinbilden der alten Volker. The Gallahorn of the Edda, nigher up, Dictionary of Scandinavian Mythology, is the thunder which summons the elves. Mjolnir, the Helmer of Thor, with which he kills frost giants, is the lightning. Tors Donner Kyle, Norse Strelitz, 1853, Passage 60. The coincidences of the symbols in the Edda with that of the lightning horn in the Indian legend is very curious, if nothing more. The cord which Glooskap unrolls, and with which he deceives the fairies who think they have him fast while he is escaping, means delusive speech or plausible talk. To talk like paying out rope is an old simile. Speech runes thou must know, if thou wilt that no one for injury with hate requite thee. Those thou must wind, those thou must rub round thee, those that must altogether place in the assembly, where people have in full court to go. Sigurit de Fumal. This is merely accidental coincidence, but it illustrates the meaning of the myth. In both cases it is wound or ripe round and rapidly enrolled, and the same simile. The following poem on Glooskap may be appropriately placed in this work. The allusion to the agates of Cape Blomidon refers to the tradition given by S. T. Rand, which states that when Glooskap would make his adopted grandmother young again, he created the brilliant stones, which are still found at that place, to adorn her. The Legend of Glooskap Bathed in the sunshine, still as of yore, stretches the peaceful Acadian shore. Fertile meadows and fields of grain smile as they drink the summer rain. There, like a sentinel grim and gray, Blomidon stands at the head of the bay, and the famous fundy tides at will sweep into Minas Basin still. With wondrous beauty at the Gaspero winds its way to the sea below, and the old Acadian grand prey is the home of prosperous men to-day. The place where Basil the blacksmith wrought, and the glow of his forge is a classic spot, and every summer tourists are seen in the fairy haunts of Evangeline. But the old Acadian woods and shores, rich in beautiful legend stores, were once the home of an older race, who wove their epics with untaught grace. Long ere the dikes that guard for a from the merciless tides the old grand prey, built by the Frenchman's tireless hands, grew round the rich Acadian lands. The Micmac sailed in his birch canoe over the basin calm and blue, speared the salmon his heart's desire, danced and slept by his wigwam fire. Far in the depth of the forest gray, hunted the moose the live-long day, while the mother sang to her Micmac child songs of the forest weird and wild. Over the tribe with jealous eye watched the great spirit from on high, while on the crest of Blomidon Glooskap the godman dwelt alone. No matter how far his feet might stray from the favored haunts of his tribe away, 
Glooskap could hear the Indian's prayer, and send some messages of comfort there. Glooskap it was who taught the use of the bow and spear and sent the moose into the Indian hunter's hands, Glooskap who strewed the shining sands. Of the tide-swept beach of the stormy bay, with amethyst purple and agates gray, and brought to each newly wedded pair the great spirit's benediction fair. But the white man came, and with ruthless hand cleared the forest and sowed the land, and drove from their haunts by the sunny shore Micmac and Moose forevermore. And Glooskap, saddened and sore distressed, took his way to the unknown west, and the Micmac kindled his wigwam fire far from the grave of his child and his sire, where now, as he weaves his basket gay, and paddles his birch canoe away, he dreams of the happy times for men, when Glooskap shall come to his tribe again. Arthur Wentworth Eaton End of section 17